Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. It is a true pleasure. You are the first person from Jump Capital that we have had on the show. So it's a true honor to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We'd love to hear, I think, a little bit more about your background, how you arrived at Jump Capital and uh, how you really first got into venture capital. It'd be great to start there, I think. Yeah, I, I never know how far to take this one back, I guess. Well, like I went to UChicago undergrad, and I, th- I think coming out of college, to be clear, didn't really know what venture capital was. So, you know, I, I knew kind of what the buy side was and private equity was, but I didn't really have a sense of venture capital. And in my defense, I don't think it was quite as popular a career choice back then. So I went into iBanking, which is a pretty typical route and a really great training ground for anyone. I think probably by banking consulting, right? Those are the two most typical ways to get your feet under you. Um, and I think in the process of engaging companies that way, like in, in the iBanking context, which was all very transactional, started to appreciate that that was not such a fun way to interact with companies, right? At the moment that something strategic was happening and then never again, basically. And so I wanted to be more operationally involved. And as I was leaving that, I was looking for roles that were more operational. And I did the typical recruiting thing. I talked to a lot of private equity firms and I think realized that most buyout shops and traditional PE weren't going to let me be particularly hands-on operational either, right? They, for the most part, had really fantastic operating teams. They had seasoned people that had been CEOs or CFOs for 50 plus years. You know, they just wanted me to do some nice Excel modeling. I think at that point, maybe someone from your Chicago, I feel like yeah, the people who had gone to Booth uh, gave me some guidance and sort of said, hey, it kind of sounds like what you are describing is more venture than private equity. You should start looking into that. Um, and so when I came into Booth, it was with the perspective that I wanted to kind of explore this venture capital thing. And right before I'd gone to Booth, I had also worked at DreamWorks, uh, which was very operational, right? I was 100% focused on one company. It was just doing finance for um, us at the studio level. That too was maybe not perfect for my career. That was just one company that didn't feel like as exciting as, you know, what was kind of happening in iBanking land. And at Booth, I really met a lot of people who were just incredible resources for me. Alumni who had gone into venture and actually in my class and the class before us, that an atypical amount, which was like five, but you know, an atypical number had gone into it and had been very helpful. And so that was sort of how I discovered that that was a little closer. And I went to a couple different spots, but uh, probably the longest tenure was at MK Capital, which was based out of Northbrook and had an office in Los Angeles as well. We had both an enterprise focus and a media focus. It was a nice kind of split. Great partners who work there, a really fantastic portfolio. And a long tenure, right? They, they'd had a number of successful exits and a great fund. And I was coming actually at the tail end of their last fund. So I was really seeing a lot of exit activity, which is a really fun place to hop in. So yeah, I guess it just all of those experiences kind of contributed to me saying, yes, this, this venture thing is a lot closer to what I wanted to do. And then I was very lucky to meet the incredible folks at Jump at a party somewhere uh, in Chicago. And I just, I think it was the people aspect of it more than anything that I just really loved about them. I just really felt like we meshed. And, you know, we we could go into a lot more about why I love Jump, but I guess that was sort of the root. So I have to ask, was it always your plan to double up on you, Chicago? Did you just love it so much during undergrad? You were like, I got to go back for the NBA. I need two more years. Yes, kind of. We have a, I don't know what it's called now, but it was like a two plus two program, meaning like you graduate and then you get into Booth. Um, So I had actually applied to Booth in my senior year of college and I knew I was accepted. I guess I didn't know in theory that I was necessarily going to go there, but you get accepted and then you automatically defer for two years and you go do whatever it is you do. I ended up deferring for three years so I could do DreamWorks as well. They gave me this incredible coach. And then throughout my period away from Booth, there was someone who was kind of guiding me. So people did that program and still ended up going to you know, Wharton and other places. Uh, I never wanted to go anywhere else. I loved Hyde Park and I wanted to be back. So no. I, I think... There's a lot of sort of questions I, I get sometimes from people who listen to the show about getting into VC and, you know, what the right path is or what your interest should be in order to make the jump into VC. You know, to me, it sounds really like the connective tissue for the early part of your career was a focus on company building. You wanted to be at the earliest of stages where you could have your hand in the company building process. Uh, would you say that's fair and an accurate assessment of kind of how you viewed your early career and your your progress? Well, to be fair, not the 
earliest part. I do think it's really important throughout your career to start figuring out what you're good at. And I do not think I'm zero to one good, to be honest, right? So there are definitely people who love to show up when there is just an idea on a napkin. There's two team members are kind of figuring it out, right? And they're in it. Um, I am I'm more of a Series A, Series B person, right? I love to meet companies when they're a little further along. Um, I mean, to be fair, we meet companies earlier than that. We engage earlier than that, um, increasingly so. But uh, I think the places where we really make the most dent at Jump and where I think I make the most dent is really in helping them build up connections and just grow in all of the aspects that are a little more Series A-like. So Roughly, but yes, I mean, it was the operational aspect of it that was exciting to me. And and that may be a little silly because obviously, like, what did I know coming out of, you know, undergrad or business school? Like, why would people ask me to help them run their businesses? But, you know, I think there's a very different place that you sit in venture capital land, which is that, you know, there's a founder who's operating a company is 100% focused on whatever that business is, retail, what have you, right? And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm over here and I see every other company that's his competition and I see what thematically is happening. It's my whole job to try to think in a much broader context. And I have, in theory, connections that could be helpful BD and could be helpful sort of commercial relationships for him. And it's, I think, the job of the VC to bring a lot of that uh, to a founder who's just really busy trying to make the thing work. And when you were going through that process of figuring out what are you best at and what do you want to focus on as an investor... I wonder when you were getting your MBA, when you were going through these experiences, did you think about Chicago as the ideal landing spot based on the fact that you didn't want to work in what sounds like, you know, true pre-seed investing, which I would almost argue, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's not a ton of true pre-seed investing here in Chicago. You wanted to focus on a little bit more of that later stage in the sense of A, B, there's more traction, maybe more sense of product market fit. Did you feel like Chicago was an ideal landing spot or or was it just fortuitous that you ended up here at Jump Capital and it was really about the firm and not sort of the ecosystem? So it was definitely more about the firm. I didn't have that much of a perspective on the distinctions across geographies. And I also, you know, to be clear, like don't haven't vetted all geographies. So I didn't spend any time in Miami. I have no idea what's going on over there. But there was a degree to which that was true. Um, the only other geography that I spent much time in was, and, and still to, right, is Los Angeles. And there was a lot of seed investing activity in LA. And, and that was for a time kind of where I thought I was headed. Uh, and I love a lot of the firms out here. But as you say, that wasn't kind of a perfect fit. So for sure, a bit of why I really love Jump was we were focused on the later stage of the portfolio already reflected that by the time I showed up. Um, there were other things too, but I don't know if that's true of Chicago specifically, right? I think that's true of Jump. There is an incredible diversity of seed, pre-seed, very late stage, right? GTCR. There's, there's sort of everything in Chicago. So yeah, I, I have to ask about the LA front. I mean, did your time in DreamWorks Studios, I'm a huge movie buff, but part of me thinks that if I actually got into the factory and saw the sausage was made and spent actually long, countless hours in a movie studio, <laughs> I might have sort of trepidations about watching their future releases or going to the movie theater. Did that experience at all shake you from, uh, did, are you a movie fan? Like what led to your time at DreamWorks? I'm so fascinated by that. <laughs> I am a movie fan. Uh, that did not lead to it at all, actually. Um, I actually never sort of associated those two things together. Um, I grew up watching just a ton of movies, but I didn't really think of that as career related, even though I grew up in Los Angeles. and I suppose I should have. That's pretty much everyone's career. When I was in banking, I touched the media side a bit. How could you not? Right. Um, and I ended up at DreamWorks because uh, the person who had been the finance manager that was the role before me had the exact same pedigree. Like they had also been at UBS and the person that had been the finance manager before them had been at UBS. So it was as though the DreamWorks folks were like, we have a formula. Let's go, let's go find that. Um, and so I met them through a connection at Disney. Um, and I mean, I just really, again, it was like the team, the team is always kind of the most important thing, right? That really resonated. And I was on the live side, so not, you know, Shrek, um, but Saving Private Ryan. And that team is really small, which was really cool. The DreamWorks animation, um, I mean, that that was thousands of people before they sold, right? Um, it's a huge campus, free frozen yogurt, very nice. Uh, on our side, Amblin, um, which was on the Universal lot, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 people across sort of development, production, finance, right? So we were all pretty close. Um, it was nice. We all fit into one courtyard together. Um, it was exhilarating. I mean, I literally worked, you know, like steps away from Steven Spielberg it was hard not to be excited about that. Um, and we put out incredible movies. Our philosophy was 
we're just going to make really great movies and that's going to be enough, right? Um, and the fascinating thing about it in that window was that was really when so much transition was happening, when Netflix had started to become really just a streaming player and, and Hulu was merging. And so much of LA was starting to think, oh boy, the streaming thing is maybe relevant. But at DreamWorks, we were still very insulated. We said, hey, we're going to make the movies we're going to make. They're going to be good movies. People are going to buy them. We're good, right? And it was such a small part of our business. So I think actually having that experience, which was a little bit accidental, was what led to me making media a very core part of what I invest in and what I love, which is, you know, now I, I can kind of, at the time, I could really see like, boy, stuff was happening on the horizon and we're not really doing much here and I'd like to do stuff with that. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting because it definitely is, as you said, still an area of passion for you. And it's an area that's just undergone so much technological innovation and change, um, even through the last year. I think it's hard for people to remember kind of pre-COVID, you know, what the landscape was compared to what it is today and how many streaming services there are. And, um, you know, I, I think it's an area that I know that jump has kind of invested into as well. And specifically, you know, you, you had a blog post from earlier this year where you talked about the exit of one of your portcos to be, am I saying that right? To be. Yep. All yep. right. There we go. Boom. Um, I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that company as it did reach such a successful outcome. And, you know, we can maybe get into what that exit kind of symbolized about the current state of the media and streaming landscape in the U S Sure. I mean, look, I could talk about it for a long time. Uh, we are very thematic folks at Jump. It was one of the other things that I really loved about this team. Um, and back in 2016 or so, right, we were spending a lot of time kind of thinking about video um, and the emergence of, and obviously streaming already existed, right? People were streaming content, to be clear. Um, but it was really this enormous focus on these subscription services. And frankly, it still is today. And that's not realistic. I mean, it just there's no human being who cuts a $300 a month cable bill to pay $500 a month for 20 different services. It's just not, that's not what people want, right? Um, so the thesis at the time, um, you know, well before we met Tubi was there's something missing here. And I think specifically it was like free, right? Um, and, on, and there was other aspects of the thesis that we were interested in. For example, we were really interested in broadcast content and just, you know, the, the typical channels you get with your antenna. And we thought those guys were going to get a little bit of a windfall in terms of general advertising because, you know, the young hip kids that were cutting the cord were realizing, hey, there's free TV. That's cool. Um, and so there was a piece of it that was that, right? There was a piece of it that, you know, I think in your insular world of other VCs, uh, the assumption is, well, nobody watches ads if they can pay to clear them, right? And that's really not true because the average income in the US does not support it, right? Um, so there were all these other analytics that sort of helped us say, hey, free is specifically valuable. There's a there's an aspect of this that's missing. Um, and so when we met Tubi, it just was like, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely, right? This this makes tremendous sense. And um, and look, really, the Tubi success is all Farhad's success, right? The incredible CEO, incredible team there. Um, and they really ran at that opportunity in a very clever way, in a very data-driven way, um, in a way that, you know, if they had just pulled people out of typical Hollywood and asked them to do that, like those guys would have just burned a lot of money and it wouldn't have led to that same level of success. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you tell me what you want me to specifically focus on, but I think it was, uh, it was both the kind of like a thematic change and as you're right, like a really interesting change in consumption patterns and behavior. And obviously, you know, not just to be but Pluto and Zumo and Crackle. And there's a couple others, right? Those guys definitely had a moment and they are a big part of consumption for um, the public now. So it, that really, that became a lot more important than it was in 2016. Yeah. And you mentioned you are a jump, your thesis driven. Was this a situation where you had this thesis beforehand and you knew what you were sort of looking for or the area of opportunity and to be fit perfectly? Or did the thesis really start to evolve once you met the people at Tubi, once you invested and saw kind of this opportunity? How did it, I guess, which came first and how does that usually work at Jump? You would hope the thesis would come first. But it would be a lie to say that it was such a profoundly accurate thesis that we met to be and it was, you know, dead on. It, there was a lot more to that thesis and it was actually really advertising centric. We were really thinking a lot about addressable advertising and how advertising would change and the fact that, you know, uh, we weren't dismissive of ad models, whereas other people sort of thought those were going away. Um, so that was a big part of it. But we definitely were very interested in the evolution of video and cord cutting. And then I think when we met to be a lot of that came together. So yes, it is always kind of a hybrid of that. If I think about 
the various areas where we have philosophies, um, it is always kind of a combination of, look, we've looked at a ton of data and we have some philosophy, uh, right? Like now uh, my colleague Sai is doing a ton of work on the creator economy. And so we have some philosophy, hey, stuff is really opening up. There's a very different universe of creators now um, who are able to monetize and there's very different monetization models. Um, but, you know, then we actually meet a company and that really grounds us in the specifics of what we believe, I guess. Okay, so I have to ask because it hasn't come up on the show yet because I haven't met anyone with kind of your background. Quibi, thoughts on Quibi? I mean, that was like my favorite company for a stretch there because I thought they were just so just audaciously kind of mm. out of their like it, it was such a it was such a form of content that I really thought was going to be a disaster or a complete home run that was going to change the viewing right. landscape. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a one or uh, zero or one. There was nobody yeah. in between. So kind of your thoughts, maybe a postmortem on why you thought it failed. Boy, there's a lot of those. I don't know. I won't pretend to know. I, and to be honest, I was really optimistic about it. I, I Look, the philosophy is not wrong. Um, mobile consumption is very different um, than the consumption of a living room TV, right? That you have a really big screen and you're consuming something and it's 100% engaging your attention and focus and mobile always lagged. Um, the fascinating thing is that people don't seem to care, right? Like the experience of watching something on YouTube is worse, obviously, than watching something on a 16-inch screen TV in your living room. But people do watch eight hours of YouTube a day anyway. Um, and it's 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 user-generated content, right? And it's not high-quality, incredible production content. And that still wins for people. Um, and even before Quibi, I remember Vessel and obviously YouTube Red, a lot of people had tried to do this, you know, hey, I'm going to add a ton of production value to these short form bits of content and you're going to pay for that. And as it turns out, people like really didn't want to. I, I think to some degree, it really comes back to free versus not free, right? That the free content is adequate and engaging and people are pretty excited about that. And then you ask them to pay $8 a month because you're going to make it look like HBO. And they're like, you know what? I could have just paid for HBO. Um so I don't know if that was a bit of it. I, I was a subscriber. I watched it. I, th I thought there was really great shows on it, um, but there wasn't nearly enough. And it, that's sort of what I mean also about just sort of asking a Hollywood person to create this versus, you know, someone who knows how to run a strappy startup, right? They raised a ton of money. They spent a ton of money and a ton of money actually only buys you so many shows. And it just simply isn't enough of a catalog in order to really have a, you know, welcome to Quibi, everything you want is here catalog and you never have to leave and you'll pay month over month and you'll always be entertained. I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars, right? So it was just, it, no matter how much money they raised, it wasn't enough. And, and the experience was okay. It was cool. But was it so much cooler that people needed to pay? And I think the short answer was no, because they, they didn't. And I think too, just the rise of TikTok during that time. I mean, there was other sort of content areas that were drawing people's yes. attention away that Quibi could have never predicted. Um, so I think, but I, I or completely COVID, agree. Right. That yeah, they or, yeah. Couldn't have really because, predicted. Yeah. Because the idea would that you'd be watching the content on your phone on the way while to work, you know, you could do it at yeah. stretches and while you're commuting and it's like, well, no one's commuting. Um, I, I, I'm, as it's we're tough. on this topic, this is like an area that just like fascinates me. I love, so I have, you know, one other topic I wanted to, to sort of talk about while we're here. Um, the current landscape of streaming, and I'm, I'm referring now back to um, motion pictures and the film industry, yeah. and the current landscape we're in with streaming and its place um, and how it's sort of kept the industry alive during COVID. Um, and, and, and also kind of the dynamic now that you see in place where there are major talent pools, there are major sort of individuals in the film industry who seemingly are quite upset at the sort of Hollywood's ah, new direction with yeah. Disney plus and the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit with many directors coming out and hating the decision that HBO and Warner brothers made to stream all their movies at the same time in their theater. I'm just curious about where you think we're headed in that domain and that realm and how it's going to look like in a post COVID world with streaming and sort of movie theaters. Can they, can they exist? Is there a place for both? And just where you land, I guess, on that side of the debate. Yeah, this is interesting. And, and we have written about this a little bit. Um, even if you remember uh, the Tower Heist movie, which, boy, when, when was that released? You know, like was that Eddie Murphy. Yeah, like 10 or yeah, 15. I was like, yeah, 2011 or something. Yeah, there was a huge hullabaloo about that because it was a uh, like almost near immediate release to premium VOD, which meant that like it would show up at homes. And if you paid 
know, like 30 bucks or something, right? You could watch it at home sort of within two weeks, I think, of the release. And that was one of those like early battleground tests for the windowing, which was, you know, hey, traditionally movie theaters had had X amount of window before it went to home video. And, um, you know, and there was like five years and eventually you saw it on an airplane, right? It was like a very long and it was really structured. These windows were incredibly structured. And from, you know, our DreamWorks perspective, like we had very specific P&Ls and they were all built around the way that this was all gated. Um, and, you know, even then, movie theater economics weren't really that great. I think everyone sort of knows they make the money off the popcorn, right? It's, it, the movie dynamics were tough. And especially if you were negotiating with a very large studio and you really needed the content, then you weren't getting a great split. Um, and, you know, I think you saw for the last decade, then some, right, a lot of these movie theaters just consolidating. There are only so many chains left, right? Um, and they had to consolidate for power. And so on the one hand, you had these studios consolidating and becoming enormous. And then on the other hand, you you had the theaters trying to do the same, but they were always significantly smaller players. And that was hard. So, you know, for a long time, uh, the industry was coming for this, basically, right? And it was just a natural thing, because it is no longer okay for the consumer to wait six months for a movie to clear the you know, the movie theater window and then show up and they'd forget about it, right? And as you described, right, there's so much more competitive content. It's it's games, it's TikTok, it's Snap, it's whatever. So by the time the movie has been out of theaters for two weeks, no one remembers that it existed. It's not going to work. Um, so I think there's always been this really healthy tension. Um, but on the other hand, as a person who loves movies, you love movies, right? There's a value to watching something in a the theater. Um, and a little bit of the pressure I always felt has been from the talent um, and from directors who, you know, even when they negotiated to deal with say like a Netflix or a streaming player would always say, hey, this needs to be in a movie theater at some point and, and had to be, frankly, for awards, right, um, to be eligible. So, uh, I mean, I, I think the result when, you know, when COVID happened was, hey, this is kind of our opportunity <laughs> to just make these go straight to streaming. And of course, the distinction was also now all of these studios had their own streaming platforms. And so it was really monetizable for them and really valuable for them to try to grow the value of those platforms um, a little bit at the expense of the theaters. But the theaters were closed, which is really not much they could do and they could easily say oh we're really sad about the theaters being closed but but we have to do this and um and so the prediction was yeah eventually you know most of these theaters may not make it uh or or they get bought by someone and right and and someone larger that could compete um and so you know there was a lot of excitement about maybe amazon picking up a chain and so what will actually happen i don't know it's a really tricky dynamic and they're actually trying to resolve it now um, I don't think movie theaters will disappear, um, but to make the economics of it work, you'll see them become a lot more like restaurants, right? Um, and, and you'll see them get a lot more creative about trying to make the the money there profitable. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I'm happy you brought up Amazon. I have a personal hypothesis that just in 10 years from now, Amazon, Netflix, Disney are all going to own all of the movie theaters and it's going to be a completely vertically integrated experience. But that's that's kind of a, that's just a little personal hypothesis. Who knows? We'll see. I do not know. Um, you had mentioned though at the top before we got down this uh, tangent on movies, which has been one of my favorite interview uh, segments <laughs> thus far. Um, I can talk about this stuff all day, but I'd love to bring it back a little bit to Jump Capital, just because I think a lot of listeners are, you know, being introduced to you guys for the first time in this episode. So, yeah. I think it'd be great to mention a little bit about the stage at which you invest and the fact that it seems like you have offices somewhat across North America. But would just love to hear about some of the investment areas, some of the areas of focus that Jump Capital looks to, um, and and you know, a little bit more about the the you know, description of the fund and how long you guys have been around for. That'd be great. Yeah, sure. So Jump, I think it's been around for about a decade at this point. Um, and uh, so Chicago is 100% HQ. Um, for us, most of the team is in Chicago. And I think the early thesis of the fund and it's a continuing thesis was let's, let's serve the underserved territories um, and let's try to be in Salt Lake and Detroit and, you know, other places which certainly 10 years ago were, were relatively ignored. Uh, a lot less so now because a Zoom is a Zoom and it sort of doesn't matter um, after COVID, right, if you're an SF or somewhere else. But um, but I think that was a really big piece of the philosophy. And as we are thematically driven, there are you know, four areas roughly that we spend most of our time in. So a piece of that is enterprise infrastructure. Um, so think about that, you know, like cybersecurity would be a good example. Um, another piece of that is vertical SaaS, which feels like a bit of a catch-all bucket, but I would say a lot of our thinking on the future of commerce, retail applications lives there. 
um, fintech, uh, absolutely fintech. And I, I think of crypto as kind of a piece of fintech, but really, I guess it kind of stands alone as well. That's been a focus for us for a long time. Um, and media. Um, so we, we kind of cover all those trains. And when we say thematically driven, I think what we mean is that every year, for the most part, the sub thesis areas, the really specific things that we're hunting um, change and evolve. Um, and we do try to publish those and share those with people. Um, but that, I would say, drives our decisioning more than the geography. Um, I think that's increasingly true. We have investments everywhere um, now. Uh, and I think that's yeah, you know, just because, hey, we find the right company and they happen to be, you know, not in our backyards. That's OK. Uh, and we're doing our best. Um, and then in terms of stage, so AB is, is core, right? Um, we I would think it is pretty typically like an eight to ten million dollar check. That's our sweet spot. We lead those rounds. We definitely want to lead. We want to take board seats uh, more than that. Right. We really just want to be the point of contact for that entrepreneur. If we're top of that call list, we're really happy. Um, and that is really important for us to be. Yeah, go back to what we started with, right? Like to be their operating partners um, and to be a partner in a real sense of the word for them. I am really curious because um, being that this is a show primarily about Chicago area VCs or at least those HQ'd, I actually haven't gotten the chance to talk to too many Series B investors um, mm -hmm. and Series A for that matter. I mean, Origin and, and the Hyde Park Ventures, a few mm -hmm. of them do make Series A investments, but I'd say the sweet spot is usually that sort of seed stage, that pre-product market fit stage. Um, yeah. So I, I'm just fascinated by the origination of uh, Jump Capital, why the focus on Series A, Series B. Um, and, and I guess we can dive a little bit into what the difference is as you guys see it today between Series A and Series B, because it's just been changing, I feel like, or at least the early stage as a whole has been changing so much over the past few years. But would love to hear about you know that origination, why the focus on A and B. Well, the interesting thing is it it has changed, right? So that same check, you know, seven years ago, less, right? That would have been like a serious C lead, lead <laughs> check, right? Things things have changed a lot. So I won't pretend, but I don't think, right, that we came out of the gate swinging with we write Series A checks. I think it was it's always it's always been core. It's always been a big part of the philosophy. But if I look back, there were a lot more probably B leads and C leads even. Historically, um, but I think the stage at which we invest has fundamentally not changed, which is that we historically have not been um, that heavy on pre-revenue companies, as you've described, right? We're looking for companies that have some level of product market fit, that have most aspects of their team in place. Um, and, you know, because you're thematic, there's something specific that you're trying to get behind in terms of market and approach. And so we're looking for that. It isn't quite as easy for us to just, um, you know, meet someone that's kind of roughly got a space in their head and, you know, boy, are they talented. And so let's give them some money. There's a degree to which that, frankly, is an incredibly successful strategy. Um, but I think the core of our checks is really uh, later. I think what's also happened is we do write a fair amount of seed checks, to be clear. We don't lead them. Um, our philosophy is, you know, hey, we're going to build a relationship with this team and with this company. And we're going to see how that company evolves. And that puts us in a much better position to be a really big partner. At the, we didn't invent this philosophy. Other people do the same thing, right? Um, but it works. And, and it is, uh, you know, I, I don't know, maybe 10 plus checks uh, in a given year for us are really just about kind of connecting. And um, a number of those do materialize into us being the lead in the next round. How vigilant then, I guess those checks that are are made in a sense of of building a relationship and getting on the cap table with with great entrepreneurs, um, are you all still as um, hyper vigilant about valuation at that stage? Do you want to ensure a certain level of ownership at that at those check sizes? Um, I guess how do you think about that as opposed to how you're probably thinking about those Series A B investments, where as you said, you do want to lead, you do want a board director seat. Um, just curious about that dynamic. Yeah, look, it's always important for us to have a material stake. It would just not work. Um, and, and frankly, just, uh, you know, the amount of money that we're deploying is for us to kind of ship 50K checks places and um, hope for the best, nor would we want to do that, right? Because that's not us actually being connected. And and for all we say, uh, you know, hey, we don't lead those Series C rounds, we're still very involved, right? Uh, we still are close to those companies. We still want to help them. We try to help them. We use our operating platform 
um, to be supportive, especially as they scale, as they are recruiting, as they run into challenges that we're familiar with across our portfolio. So it just it wouldn't be tenable if we had hundreds and we were trying to support them. And frankly, the philosophy would just really break down because we wouldn't know which ones of them are really you know heading the direction that we're excited about. Uh, we wouldn't know anything. Um, so I, I think there is a level um, of ownership that is important to us at the seed stage. It, it's not quite as fixed, but also at the seed stage is an opportunity for us to get more ownership, right? So uh, yes, and and those are still material checks, um, and we are still invested. So hopefully that's a good answer. Yeah, that's a great answer, and and you hit on something too as well as the platform team that you have at Jump. Um, I'd love to dig in a bit to post-investment support that Jump is able to provide. I know you yourself, the reason you got into this business was to help sort of company formation and building at the earliest stages. So I'd imagine you try and get in as involved as you can on the operating side when and where you know appropriate. But we'd just love to hear about the platform team at Jump and what you guys look to provide your entrepreneurs post-investment. Yeah, this is something we've built over time and really invested in. Um, and it has been built a lot with the feedback of the companies that we work with. So there's a lot of elements to it. I mean, one thing that almost everyone has asked us for is help with recruiting and talent, right? Everyone's scaling up really quickly, especially after they receive a check. Um, and so a piece of it is uh, we have a platform, which really is about sort of sourcing everything from within our network, from within our portfolio companies network and trying to level up these candidates who might be a great fit, connecting the companies to those candidates. And a lot of playbooks and tools uh, built around recruiting and how you can build a, a really efficient path to finding great talent and um, nurturing that talent and retaining them um, at your company, right? Um, we've always had operators that are full-time with us that help our companies um, that, you know, literally parachute into the companies a couple days a week, more than that, right? And um, you as a Series A company, for example, are pretty unlikely to have a strategic CFO. That would actually be strange. Um, but you likely need one occasionally, right? Things come up and um, it, it's, we can we can loan out these resources and the companies really appreciate that. Um, there's also relationships that we have on the sales side with external resources. So we do all of these events. We bring a lot of our portfolio companies together um, with the speakers and, you know, uh, just give them kind of guidance in these playbooks. And there's a lot of common problems across the portfolio, right? We invest in a bunch of enterprise SaaS companies. They all have very similar questions. We invest in a lot of companies that are in the rate sale space. They run into the same problems. So it, it kind of makes sense to put them all together and let them engage. And, you know, every day we learn other things that they want to do or engage in different manners. And then we try to support that. So there is a lot there, I guess. Um, there's an advisor network. There's all sorts of folks that are kind of in and around um, the universe of Jump that have always been really kind to our portfolio companies. And, and we try to find ways to plug them in and engage. But the priority fundamentally is, you know, we want the founders to feel like, you know, Jump is a, a real resource for them. Yeah. And it's, I think it's an interesting uh, model in that I think there's like a broader sort of statement at work here about the state of VC today. And mm -hmm. I could totally be oversimplifying things. And if I am, uh, please let me know. But it almost feels like in today's world, there's like two models that are really sort of, of are clearing. Uh, there's two models that are really prominent now. And there's almost a divergence. There's the platform enabled VC where you no longer can just offer a check. You need to sort of provide more than just capital. And that's one model. And it seems like a lot of firms have tried to follow that some successful, some unsuccessfully in the last five years, um, especially since Andreessen sort of pioneered it, you know, probably 10, 10 and first years round ago. And yeah, yes. A lot of right. Yeah. So there's that model. And then there's the tiger global, where is if you're not going to provide a platform assistance, you better be able to move fast. You better not be asking too many questions. You better inject that company with cap capitals fast as humanly possible. Yeah. Am I oversimplifying things or does it feel like this is the two paths that are sort of, of available to VCs today? That's a, there's, there's more, you could be, you could still be a perfectly normal trusted VC. And, and I think, look, companies, um, the truth is, I don't think that they sign a term sheet with a fund. I think they sign a term sheet often with a person, right? And so um, if you happen to have gone into VC from being an exceptional operator, I think to some degree that's enough, right? Um, and there will be founders who just want to work with you and they want your incredible experience. And, um, you know, you could also have a suite of other stuff that you promise and uh, or you could not. And that might be enough, right? They might just relate to you on a human level and want to have you sit in those board meetings. That's actually so important, uh, more important than most of things, right? 
Um, so no, there's a lot of ways that you could be, I hope, a, a value additive investor. Um, and there's other elements that founders are looking for. I mean, I think a piece of the content that, you know, the, the strategy that we have around content and increasingly being very public about the areas that we're interested in was trying to get across to founders that, hey, we're not like kind of dabbling here, right? We're really passionate about your space. Um, and when we tell you that we believe fundamentally this is the right way to do this and you're doing something really interesting and we see this enormous opportunity ahead of you, we believe that and here's why. And, um, you know, I think that Oh, it's also another way to say, hey, if we work together, you're going to have someone sitting next to you who's a real champion of your strategy um, and of you, right? So I think there's actually a lot at play when people pick who they work with as an investor. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the content perspective of what you guys, uh, you know, what you guys have been putting out. And, you know, we're going to link the show notes, all the great blog posts that you guys have had that we've touched upon in this episode and, and, the, and the podcast. But, uh, a quote that you had in one of your blog posts that I thought was really interesting. Um, you said that big bets are generally born of multiple disruptions and not just one. I'm mm -hmm. curious if you could unpack that statement a little bit, because we were talking a little bit just previously about sort of the state of VC and, and some of the disruptive elements of what's going on in the streaming streaming world. And I know sports betting is another area you have a vested interest in. So yeah. I guess for, from a high level, could you talk about that sort of ideology around multiple disruptions being necessary for, for big bets to you know avail themselves? Yeah. And to be clear, not something I made up, I think probably something they taught me at Booth, but um <laughs> Yeah, I, I well, I just sort of like think about it, right? Um, if you you know notice one uh, sea change, um, so you know to give an example, you notice people are watching more stuff on mobile. There's more content consumption on mobile. That does not really an investment thesis make because there are plenty of studios making content and they can make content on mobile too, right? Um, so that that's not enough. Um, but if you were to notice that, hey, more people are consuming content on mobile and the content that they're consuming is fundamentally not studio production, like production level content, but they're consuming this user generated content. Well, now it's a little more interesting because now that kind of clears the incumbents of the field, but still not great because in this case, for example, you still have YouTube um, and you still have other players. So you, you kind of need a couple things, right? Generally, to be honest, what happens is there's some sort of uh, force majeure, there's a COVID type thing that happens. There's something big, right? Hopefully not COVID repeatedly, but you know, something enormous that happens that catalyzes either really quick e-commerce penetration as it did, right? Or a really big sea change in the level of streaming adoption. Um, and then there's a change in consumer preferences, which is a piece of it. And then there is something else, which is either a change in technology that enables a new player to show up and be much better than the incumbents, or maybe there's a just a really creative new approach, which is a platform that is highly specific and targeted and as opposed to being a generic thing like a YouTube, for example, in this scenario we've just dreamed up is, is highly specific to journalist content. And it just so happens everyone wants that, right? It needs to be a couple different things. Otherwise, it doesn't create room for a startup to win. It just makes it possible for the people who exist to just be slightly more successful or the opposite, right? Or to kill a blockbuster. But it, it doesn't necessarily create opportunity. Yeah, obviously. Hopefully that's helpful. No, totally. It's it's kind of like you're laying out it's it's a groundwork for the the you know, what's necessary, the recipe for innovation, like true big Correct. monumental Something innovation that launches yeah. unicorns. Yeah. Um no, I love that. And I think if we could apply that sort of line of thinking a little bit to the sports betting space. Now, yeah. I'm going to say from the top, I don't really gamble on sports. I had a hot streak in college. I had a true, true hot streak. And then yeah. I retired like junior year of college. Top of your said, game. Good for you. Top of my yeah. game. You know, it paid for beer monies during spring break of junior year. So I was like set to go. Um, right. So I haven't really been keeping too close of tabs on the market. I know that it's federally been made. I think it's been legalized in a lot of right. states, but not every state. So right. I just love to hear kind of your overall, you know, broad level view of where we are in the sports betting adoption cycle. Yes. So yeah, there, there, that's one where there's a government change, right? Uh, where, you know, PASPA was repealed and, and that sort of enabled all, they cleared the path for the states basically to legalize as they chose. Um, sports betting and many have. So I think back in 2019 or something when we first looked at the space that 10 had, and then, you know, more than double that um, have today and have activity in those states. And today that's trending to be kind of a $3 billion category. Whereas before it was really, you know, small as Vegas and 
um, and some other grandfather territories. So it, it is a sizable opportunity. Um, but as we kind of chatted about, it isn't just about the clearance of that path. It was also, um, you know, consumers in the U.S. didn't grow up with sports betting. Uh, well, I mean, they probably grew up with bookies. It's not like they didn't know what it was. But, you know, I think they didn't. Um, it's not like the U.K., right, where you're sort of seeing a William Hill ad everywhere. Um, they just didn't grow up with that. Their families didn't all do it. They didn't, you know, kind of gather around and, and all make bets um, together. That wasn't as, as popular. But I think, you know, we had a lot of fantasy lead the way. Right. Um, and we also as a group, the U.S. you know, population, it would tend to be a lot more analytic in a, in our broadcast, right? There tends to be a lot more focus on data than if you ever watch like a, you know, a stream globally of any other sports soccer. It's, it's so much more focused on the metrics. It lends itself to that. And so it sort of naturally lent itself to fantasy. And then you had a bunch of people who really thought of this incredible opportunity um, to blend entertainment and real money risk. And then to make that largely legal, you know, fantasy is largely legal and, 48 states, I think. Um, and so you kind of expose people to it and they got comfortable with it. And then there was a general legalization. And even still, I would say consumer preferences are still shifting because I, you know, I know we talk to a lot of people and there's a line for people in their heads. There's fantasy and then there's betting. And there's still a little bit of a puritanical perspective about betting's like a little bit different. And we go to the casino and we lose money to the house. And I don't know how do we feel about that. But it's changing, right? Um, and so that that's a the big sea change. And there's a lot of other stuff going on there too, right? The, but, you know, just even the way that we consume sports and the way Gen Z's engage with sports is so very different. The way that we are now more attached to athletes really than we are to teams and, and how, you know, it's just everything about that dynamic is so different. So there's so much happening. And I think all to some degree will contribute to how people either, you know, the casual better um, or, or even sort of, you know, the better that's kind of putting down real or slots of money, um, how those people are really going to evolve and, and how the U.S. market will become big, which we, we do think it will be, you know, a 20 plus billion dollar market at some point. So to you, I mean, it sounds like we're really still in the early innings of, of this new sort of frontier in terms of sports gambling. And I'm curious yeah. about the generational differences, which you've kind of hinted at, but, uh, you know, what are kind of the differences between millennial sports bettors and I guess Gen Z, if, if there are any kind of substantial ones? So I actually don't know what the differences are between those generations. Um, from a betting perspective, I can tell you the differences that we've run into just from a sports consumption perspective, um, because that certainly exists. Uh, the Gen Z consumption of sports certainly has become a little more tethered to highlights. Um, and I always have thought that just, you know, sort of inevitably, because, you know, you cut the core, you just don't have the ability to watch full live games. You can't watch what you want to watch. Um, I think uh, it's also been kind of a transition away from, you know, I love this team because I was born in Philadelphia to, I kind of love this team because I really love this particular athlete. Maybe I don't really love this team at all. I just love this particular athlete, right? And I follow him on social and I'm really interested in all the other stuff that they do off the field, right? The, the dynamics are very different and the level of engagement is different and it is much broader than just seeing an athlete play. There's a much broader context for their level of enthusiasm. Um, but there's also, hey, if I wanted to make some money um, and, and try my hand at, you know, I, I know more about sports and and I'll have fun there. The fantasy has existed for a while. Um, and so that's an aspect of it. I think the part that's kind of nuanced and interesting is the Gen Z can, you know, risk entertainment hybrid that actually tends in my head to lean more towards esports, right? And gaming. And I think the focus is a little bit different there. And um, I, I think there's going to be a lot of folks in that population where if you gave them the option to either bet on the Lakers or to bet on their favorite esports team would actually go the other way based on what they play and what they engage with and, you know, how much uh, stuff they watch on Twitch. Um, and so there's, it's actually a, a different, you know, gravitation. And by the way, like sports betting can be betting on esports too. It very much is right. Uh, um, and DraftKings and FanDuel offer that. And a lot of people offer that, but I think there's a little bit of, Hey, maybe they're looking for slightly different events and their relationship to traditional sports is a little bit different. Yeah, no, I think that makes total sense based on, um, a lot of the other kind of unique behavioral, um, 
behavioral aspects of this younger generation of Gen Z, I think it, it almost leads into the, the, the emphasis on the individual, the emphasis on the athlete and their off the court persona and mission and values. And it almost corresponds to how they view corporations as well and how they view yeah. purchases from in the retail space. I mean, I think it's all sort of connected. It's all part of this connective tissue of this up and coming generation. Um, I think there's a recent investment that you guys made that falls within this thesis that I, I think we'd love to hear a little bit more about um, sport trade and what the value prop was behind that company and why you ultimately invested. Yeah. Uh, so, it, well, look, we, we were interested in sports betting. We looked at a bunch of models. Um, and, you know, if you look state by state, they're dominated by the players that already exist or the players that came in, um, you know, and had already like a pretty substantial global presence. Um, but we kind of thought that, Again, the U.S. is a little bit different. And one of the fascinating things about the U.S. market was just the way that people engaged with trading, like capital markets. Um, and that's obviously evolved in such a material way, right? Everyone sort of thinks about Reddit and Robinhood and this really quickly growing access um, for, for Gen Zs, for millennials, for anyone, for the next generation to get involved in capital markets in a way that you know, maybe their parents didn't until they started dabbling with their 401k in a very traditional vanguard way, right? Um, there's a very different level of um, engagement, but also it's social fundamentally, right? That people are kind of like sharing um, these meme stocks and they're engaging. Um, and But there's real money risk here, right? So again, it's entertainment and real money risk, and they're putting those things together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be clear, not doing this in a, um, you know, in a super casual way, people are still charting, people are still running these incredible analytics, you know, like watch these videos. And it's fascinating the level of analysis and depth that people go into, right? So there's a lot of thought behind it. Um, but it is just it's social and it's it's very different. And we've invested behind that a lot, right? We were investors in TradingView and M1 and we've been investors in personal capital. And I think all about sort of empowering people with their personal financial lives um, and their investing. And I, we saw that evolution is really interesting. And there's no reason why, you know, you buying a stock is fundamentally that different than you buying crypto or you buying, a, you know, a fractional investment in some art some farmland we invest in acre trader you can do that um or you know you making a bet on a game it's all again it's just like risk and entertainment how do you bring those two things together and so it was interesting to us the 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 books that kind of existed weren't really obviously like that right uh you still had lines and odds it was a little bit of a foreign concept the interface was a little bit clunky the experience was a little hard to fathom. The the take rate for those books was rough, right? It was hard to make any money at the end of the day. Um, and so that was a, a tricky dynamic. And then you, you couldn't really place all the bets that you wanted to place. That was a little bit based on the back end of those players. And, and there was a lot of, you know, it was just a very opaque space. And I, I think there was just a lot left to be desired. Where it was, you know, in capital markets, you've got commission-free trades and so much transparency. And it was a completely different universe. And you know, whether people were really appreciating that those were like two sides of the same coin or not, we felt like they were going to figure that out. Um, and so sport trade was just a very different approach, right? It's a, it's an exchange at the end of the day. It's a very liquid opportunity to place the bets that you want to place very small, you know, take rate relative to what kind of exists. And it is really about offering that same level of transparency and, you know, engaging consumers in that very same kind of dynamic. Um, and I, I guess that really excited us. And I love the team, too. Right. I mean, Alex, for someone who's, you know, relatively young in his founder existence, has been able to recruit such an exceptional team of folks that from, you know, betting from fintech from all aspects of the world are, are building something really unique. So that was what made us enthusiastic. And I would imagine that a, uh, a company like that will do very well with the Chicago market because, uh, <laughs> as many people know, Chicago is a huge sports town. And Elena, this has been an amazing conversation. I think to, you know, what I'd love to cover as we wind down is some of your views or your experiences with the Chicago uh, tech and, you know, venture capital ecosystem. You've been in Chicago from your undergrad days. Um, you know, you did your MBA here. I would love to hear just kind of how you've seen the ecosystem evolve uh, during your time here. That's, like, that's a really big question. It's a loaded question. Um, yeah, but yes, I mean, there's been so many incredible resources that have sprouted in the time that I have been in Chicago. I mean, I think about 1871's birth, right? And how enormous that was for entrepreneurs and a lot of venture funds that have emerged or grown really materially and found really great success. I mean, a big piece of making an ecosystem work is that there fundamentally need to be big exits and then the exits feed that ecosystem again, right? Those founders start new companies, folks monetize well, they start their own things. 
Um, and I think we've seen a lot of that, right? Um, we've seen a lot of success for VCs who then were able to grow and, you know, have new funds, get a lot more aggressive about investing in new tech. And the interesting thing is that despite, you know, Chicago has a couple of things that it sort of lends itself to, right? There's certainly a lot of healthcare here. There's a lot of industrials here. There's, you know, a lot of things that huge fortune 500 companies that you could align yourself to. And, um, but the diversity of what actually gets funded is huge, right? A lot of consumer and cameo, right? Like a lot of consumer apps get funded and, um, yeah, there's a lot of engagement for you know everything from sort of traditional SaaS to, you know, dating apps, everything. Um, and so we've really broadened scope and I think made it really easy um, for founders to thrive here and never feel like they have to go anywhere else. And not necessarily just in Chicago, by the way, but the entire Midwest, because I think to some degree, the Chicago VC community really covers a lot of territory. Um, it, and so that has been a big piece of it. And then simultaneously seeing so many more founder resources surface. And, um, you know, I, I kind of lived in the booth ecosystem. So I know how much we offer from that space for, you know, the NVC program and um, entrepreneurs who kind of come out of our world. And it's just become so much of a priority. And it's, it's a push pull thing. There's a little bit of, hey, we're going to offer way more resources. There's a little bit more of entrepreneurship becomes more of a viable path. People want to do this more. And, you know, like I said, back when I graduated college in 2009, that really wasn't as much of a thing. Like I want to go, you know, make a startup. I want to go work for a startup. I want to go work in VC. Not as popular, right? I, most people want to go work for McKinsey. Uh, now it's, hey, like, I think I could really be successful running my own business or working for, um, you know, my group of friends who's founding something. And, you know, this is kind of how I envision building a very real career for myself. And this isn't kind of like a temporary thing that I dabble in. And then one day, you know, I have to move to SF to do this seriously. Right. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's been enormous. And frankly, I do think that COVID has helped because it really does kind of clear the borders and, and make it less obvious that, you know, there is any distinction between this territory geographically or somewhere else, right? You can, you can build a business, a successful business anywhere, as long as the capital exists. So I, I have to ask, um, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but I, I have to ask, you know, being from LA and having spent all the time in Chicago, have you figured out kind of the parlay of LA in the winter time, Chicago in the summer? Like, do you just have that routine down? Like, or are you still just, are you still trekking through those Chicago winters with the rest of us? Um, I, I spend more of my time in LA now. That is entirely a function of having had children and um, needing to be closer to family than it is uh, about an aversion to the winter. They're very different ecosystems. There's a lot to love about snow and the charm of the winter. There's a lot to love about how enthusiastic people are when it becomes even mildly warmer. It's 40 degrees outside. Everyone's at the beach. It's very strange. Like in LA, it's 70 degrees all the time and no one cares. Uh, so it's a you know, very different dynamic. Um, it's also very different from a, like an eco, like a VC slash tech ecosystem because here we have events well, not now because of COVID, but like we used to have events all the time, right? The year round, there was, there was constantly stuff that people were doing. And in Chicago, it really does kind of shudder um, for a little bit, right? Where everyone's like, yeah, I'm just going to be at home and sit next to some fire and <laughs> really not going to brave it out there today. So it's, it's different. I think it lends itself to a very different experience. They're both wonderful in their own special ways. Perfect answer. Yelena, thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. We really, really appreciate it. And we cannot wait to have you on again sometime in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me.